the Getting Better Now podcast, presented by the Golf Business Network, the show by golf professionals for golf professionals, profiling experts from inside and outside the golf industry to help you advance your career, make a lasting impact, and achieve your goals. Here's your host, PGA professional from St. David's Golf Club, Dean Candle. Welcome back to the Getting Better Now podcast. In this episode, we kick off the new year with a throwback. For the next 60 minutes, you'll have the opportunity to listen as the most regarded as the most successful and respected golf professional of our time, Bob Ford, and one of his many ultra-successful protégés, Steve Archer, who's put together a phenomenal career in his own right, and which you'll hear started at a club I'm pretty familiar with. They'll take questions from GBN CEO Patrick Seether and other golf professionals on topics ranging from building your career, what it takes to get a head professional position, training and leading staff, and many other valuable topics. This was recorded in 2016 when Patrick had an opportunity to sit down with these two gentlemen at Ocean Forest Golf Club. This wasn't recorded to be a podcast, so I've done my best to improve the audio to make this work as well as possible. Either way, turn up the volume, throw on some headphones, sit back and listen. This is a unique opportunity that any golf professional won't want to miss. I hope you enjoy it. Online interview here live from Ocean Forest um, in Seattle, beautiful club here, and really appreciate everybody taking the time. And certainly want to thank Steve and Bob for being here and um, taking the time out of their day here and the event they're playing in to, to do this for us and talk a little bit about the golf industry and what's going on. thought I'd uh, start out um, just asking you guys to kind of give us a, a brief date on you know where you've been, what, what's been going on with, with Steve and Bob recently, and maybe a little bit about how you got into the golf business originally. just kind of neat to hear. I'm sure a lot of the people on this call might know that, but uh, there's a lot of uh, younger guys maybe that uh, don't know the, the complete story about how you guys got into the golf industry. So, Okay, well... Uh... <clears throat> A lot to that question, I guess, but what I'm doing currently is uh, I'm uh, the director of golf at the Capital City Club in Atlanta, just about two years now. Uh, really enjoy my position there. Uh, moved there from Frederica Golf Club right here in St. Simon. So it's been a wonderful adjustment for myself and my family and uh, different size membership. We had about 300 members at Frederica Golf Club. We're about 2,200 members at Capital City. So uh, quite a different operation, but uh, enjoying it quite a bit. And I first got in the golf business, uh, really, uh, picking a range and caddying uh, in the Northeast. I was uh, grew up in Baskin Ridge, New Jersey, uh, worked for a, a really fun and good, good uh, playing professional, teaching professional named David Glenn's. Uh, David was uh, and still is a mentor in a lot of ways and uh, really got me interested in golf. Worked the junior programs for David. Uh, worked through the junior programs with David and uh, caught the golf bug that way. Once I got out of school, I started working for David, teaching in the, in the New York, New Jersey area, and then uh, finished up my apprenticeship with Bob at Oakland. What, what years were you with Bob at Oakland? I worked for Bob at uh, 97 to 99, the late 90s, yeah, 97 to 99. Had a great time there. We had a wonderful team. Billy Anderson, part of the team there, Jeff Deal. Brian Garrity. Oh, uh, who, who worked? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Who worked? Uh, it wasn't well, that crowd. Exactly. But uh, finished my apprenticeship there and uh, had a great time. Yeah. And then where, where were you directly after leaving Oakmont? I left Oakmont to take a head professional position in Philadelphia, St. David's Golf Club oh. in Wayne, right on the main line. Was there for a short time, just a couple of years, and uh, an opportunity opened in Vero Beach, Florida. Nick Price and Tommy Fazio did a golf course down there. The fellows that owned the, the uh, Dodgers the baseball team started a club there, and it was a good chance to uh, to start a club from scratch. Uh, it was a wonderful opportunity to uh, get involved in a new project, uh, create your own traditions, and which interested me greatly at the time. Still does, but it really interested me greatly at the time. Sure, yeah. Quail Valley in Vero Beach, Florida. 
Quail Valley, Vero Beach, Florida. Yeah, pretty cool spot. It is. It yeah. is. It turned out really. It's a really neat spot. Uh, Steve Olvey and Kevin Gibbon, two operators there and, and owners, uh, do a fabulous job. And Don Meadows, I think, is a GBN member. Don is uh, uh, does a wonderful job there now. Uh, yeah. It was a fun project to be involved with. Very fun. And all that legend where you're at now. It's it. You know, uh, it's funny. You know, leaving uh, leaving Quail Valley, I came to uh, came to Seattle and Frederica Golf Club from there. Uh, was about seven and a half years in Vero Beach and about seven and a half at uh, at Frederica as well. So uh, I've had some change in my career, obviously, over the time with uh, mentioning these positions that I've had. But uh, I've always tried to uh, uh, try to grow as a professional. Try to pick opportunities that were of good interest to me and I thought would do well at. So well, you've done one. Well, I've been fortunate. I've been very fortunate. Better warn the people of Capital City about your seven year bit. So Bob, how did how did you get into the golf industry? Well, you know, I uh, I went to school in Tampa and uh, Lou Worsham was the pro Oakmont during the seventy three open. And uh, I wrote him a letter to ask him if I could do anything. They actually hired me to work in the shop the week before, during, and after the, that open. And uh, I was going to graduate in 75. I went down to see him again to ask him. I really wanted just to ask him if he thought I could play the tour or not, you know. <laughs> and uh, he said, why don't you come to Pittsburgh and work for me, and I'll find out whether you can play or not. And uh, thank goodness I couldn't play. And uh, he retired, and I was fortunate enough to get picked to do that job in 1980, so I'm um, getting ready to start my 37th and final year at Oakmont, wow. and I'm excited about it. Congratulations. We're hosting the U.S. Open this summer, so yeah. really be a thrill and a treat, and uh, Devin Gee is going to take my position there, who's a 10-year assistant for me, started as an intern, but 10 years all told. Wow. So we're excited for Devin, and uh, I'm still going to do Seminole in the winter for another four or five years, if they'll have me. And uh, still go back to Pittsburgh and play at Oakmont in Suffers and uh, enjoy, enjoy some time off. Looking forward to that. Sounds like fun. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to talk a little bit about you know this organization, GBN, and, and you know, how it was originated as AMF and obviously two of the original founders here. And thought it'd be neat to just hear from the two of you and how you came together and. You know, had the idea. Do you, know, you, re, you remember the exact moment that you had that idea? Because I know, you know, for me, when I started my business, I had the, I had the moment in my mind when it happened. But uh, just thought it'd be neat to hear you guys kind of talk about that. Well, I, I asked all of my assistants in the '90s, you know, find something else we could do. You know, that would be fun that we could make some money at. And uh, actually, it was to get out of being a golf professional and do something else. But you know, we didn't do that. And that's all good. But. Uh, Steve actually was the only guy to take me up on it, and he started a, an LLC and said, you know, you help get a lot of guys uh, jobs, and you do a lot of searches, you know, for free, and why don't we get in that business, and we talked about it, and then we ran into Bob Mulcahy, who's the M in AMF, and he was doing some uh, really neat work with some professionals in New Jersey with year-end reviews to present to their boards, and Steve and I thought was an awesome idea and a great opportunity and Bob was somebody that could actually run this business that we started AMF and uh, we did it for like six years obviously Steve and I working full-time jobs and Bob was running the show and uh, you know as we got out of that business uh, we were just unhappy with the direction it was going in and uh, we both got out which kind of leads us to our next issue was why, why are we getting back in with you and uh, I was just happy to see somebody else take it over. Uh, I was really pleased to see all the neat things that you're doing with the company. And uh, I, so I gave you a call about getting back in. And I called Steve and said, Steve, we need to get back in. And, you know, it's a, a way for us to get back to the young guys and uh, um, obviously do some searches, which will be fun. But, uh, you know, the golf professional, when these guys leave, you know, particularly me, and they go on to their own jobs, they're pretty alone, you know, and we really had nobody to call. It's kind of a shame about, you know, the PGA is just so big that they can't cater to any 
particular group. So they try, you know, we try to cater to everybody. They do a great job. But, you know, the high-end golf professional at the high-end clubs uh, just doesn't have anybody to call. So you're really our guy. <laughs> you're going to call, you're the ghostbuster. That's right. <laughs> so we need somebody to, you know, to accumulate data for us, you know, when, we're, when we need some issues taken care of. And uh, so we're excited that you're back, Patrick. We love what you're doing, and we hope to be able to contribute to you to make your life easier and, and to help some young golf professionals. Well, I, I think I speak for everybody uh, on this call um, and myself that really pleased to have both of you involved again and you know you're you're the reason I got involved when um, when I was an assistant so I wouldn't be in the seat um, certainly wouldn't be some of the positions I held if I hadn't been a member of AMF and you know had the opportunities through AMF so thank you guys for starting that and and now you know kind of come full circle and doing what you're doing with us so really looking forward to our uh, association that's our pleasure Thought you know a neat topic might be to talk a little bit about you know the head, head professional job market or director of golf job market right now and, and Steve and I were going to talk about this offline beforehand um, and, and this what's the sense or I kind of want to get your feedback on where do you see that now what are there fewer opportunities that there have been in the past or does it just seem that way maybe because there's more um, more people after those opportunities I don't know just thinking of um, what, what I'm sensing in, in the market, but uh, Bob, what are, you, what are you sensing? Well, I think there's fewer opportunities. I think that the younger generation has uh, really taken over most of the big jobs, and uh, it's going to be a long time before they open up. Uh, you know, there's always a half dozen, maybe a dozen jobs open up every fall. Some guys retiring, some guys lose their jobs, and there'll always be that, but uh, it's, it's shrinking, no question. So with that, how does... How does somebody succeed in that market? I mean, what's your advice for, you know, Steve, your, your head professionals that maybe want to make that move to become a director of golf, right? What are you, what are you uh, kind of coaching them up on now? Well, shoot, it's, it's a tough market, as Bob said. So to echo his, his sentiments, I think there are fewer opportunities to, uh, for the younger professionals to, to look at. It seems that... Uh, uh, some of the jobs have turned over to younger folks, and and the one and the jobs that where older professionals are there, or I think they're staying a little bit longer in their jobs. They're really, um, I think they're enjoying what they're doing. They they really look forward to continuing that. I don't think they're leaving as uh, leaving the jobs as as maybe they did in the past. Uh, so we really encourage our head professionals. Uh, I have two. Uh, we have two golf courses at Capital City Club. I have a head professional at Crab Apple and, and one at Brookhaven. Uh, both facilities are unique in their own right. One is quite a bit busier than the other one. We do probably two to one rounds of golf at Brookhaven and Crab Apple. Uh, but it, having said that, the, the professional at, at uh, Brookhaven uh, is, is a young man named Eric Reeves, very talented young guy. Now, I see Eric being there between three and five years. Uh, he's a good player. So I encourage them to, to really work uh, work on their game, play in the in the, sec- the section tournaments and things. And uh, we're constantly looking at our operation, uh, how we can get better, uh, whether it's educational lines with vendors, uh, or if you're not looking at your operation up and down, you're going to get passed by. And one of the things that we're really trying to do is, is create some new energy, uh, continue to network. I would encourage the younger professionals, just like what you're doing here. Uh, what really why we started this uh, this whole uh, business was to, uh, to to network with others and, and uh, build your network in that regard. Continue to have your name out there in front of uh, whether you're playing tournaments or in professional awards and things of that nature. Serve the PGA, uh, which I think is is, is a big thing as well. Uh, Many of us have done that over the years, uh, sort of the section boards or tournament, tournament chairmen and the like. Uh, but it, it is competitive, but I think you've got to stay fresh. You've got to willing, my personal opinion, you've got to be willing to move uh, to take an opportunity. And I think some kids and younger uh, professionals, I want them to really research the job they're going to take. 
Sometimes I think they take a job just to get the title, and it's really not a good opportunity. And then it becomes a situation where maybe their position's eliminated down the road, or it's not a great fit, and then you've got to take a step or two back to get back into a network to, to uh, you know, try and build up your resume. Again. I've got a question. Um, do you think it's more important for a younger golf professional to look at who they're going to work for or where they're going to work? Or is it a, somewhere in between? It's a combination of those yeah. two. Yeah. Two. <clears throat> you know, where you're going is, you know, what kind of exposure are you, are you going to get? What kind of opportunities are you going to get to do what you do? And, uh, you know, the guys, uh, I mean, there's guys out there that, you know, are really good at moving guys on. And, uh, you, you know, I'd be shooting for one of those guys. Right. Um, so, uh, with that same question that Steve just answered, how do you prepare your your staff uh, to be successful in this you know in this market? Now, they, you know they come to work for you for a reason and, and your facilities and everything, but uh, you know that doesn't always guarantee success. So, how do you, you know club opens up? There's 200 resumes, and you know what would you tell somebody? How do they get their name into the whatever it is, 25 or 30 that they're actually going to look at? Well, I've got a theory on that. Okay. Um, you know, I, I had a fellow work for me one time, and he, he said, you know, how, are you, how am I going to become a top 100 teacher? And I said, well, make people play better, which just means, you know, be good at what you do. And uh, the guys are really good at what they do, get the jobs, you know, that, and they're properly networked, they're, you know, everybody knows who they are. And uh, everybody's rooting for them, and, and uh, just really be passionate about what you do, and be good at what you do, and cream rises to the top. That's a, it's a good theory. Um, had a couple of uh, questions here that came through. I thought it'd be good to maybe take some from from our audience here. Um, first of all, uh, David Coates said he uh, he worked for. Mr. Archer, so he just wanted to mention that. Uh, well, I won't tell you what he said. Please tell myself. He's listening right now. Um, one question: what are, what are a few traits in a professional that clubs and search committees look for when hiring a head golf professional? You might have just touched on a couple of those, but maybe there's some others. Uh, Shoot, I think they're looking for just what Bob said: someone who's passionate about the job brings a new uh, level of energy to the position. They want to look at things a little bit differently, re-energize the programs if, if they need it. Uh, like at Capital City, when I took over there, the professional was there for 40 years, had a wonderful operation there, did a great job. So uh, my goal was really to try and bring a new staff in, because a lot of the staff had left when he retired. So it was a good opportunity for me to bring some new young folks in change the culture to the way I liked it, uh, the way I saw how the operation might work. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm really looking for kids that are self-motivated, love the game, can play the game well, and anticipate. And I think that's the biggest thing that I look for in kids. They can't anticipate whether it's the next step, whether, what we're going to be doing next, uh, what's the next evolution of our program. And uh, so that's really what I'm looking for I really want them to be hospitality oriented, but anticipation is a big key for me. So, how important is the playing aspect of that? Huge. I it can it can be. I mean, a lot of clubs are looking for somebody that can, you know that can beat all the members. Uh, a lot of clubs aren't. You know, I mean, I've had a lot of guys move on that. You know, we're, we're B-type players that are great golf professionals and weren't great players, but they're great people. Uh, they loved what they did. They're really good at what they did. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, playing's not the end all, but it's it's a quicker way to get out, you know, and people get to know your name a little quicker and notice the, you know. But it's it's not it's not absolute. So how does, and Steve, this might be a good one for you, is the... I mean, we were talking a little bit about this, but the, the work-life balance for staff members and, and yourself, I mean, obviously it's changed probably a lot over the last whatever, 15, 20 years, but uh, you know, how, does, how does somebody manage family, you know, 
working on their game, you know, the instruction that they need to do to, you know, generate the income, think all, all that. I mean, what is, and there may not be a real, there's probably no silver, silver bullet answer there, but um, how do you manage that with your staff? Well, Bob may have a better perspective on that than I do, but uh, he's, I'm sure he's got great thoughts on it. But from my end, I always try and hire great people. I try and hire the best people I can get, give them as much uh, autonomy as I can, well, I want them to make a decision and not always have to come with me or come to me for uh, to get an answer. So I think that's the key is to have great people, train them as best you can, and uh, you want to let them run a little bit. And, and if we make a stub or toe, we make an error, we, we can we can fix it. But um, uh, but but really, I think that the key is is to have good people in your key positions and uh, let them grow. We're not going to let them fall, but maybe trip. <laughs> I got to skin their knees a little bit. But at the end of the day, I think that's the key to it: is to have good quality people, and you've got to be committed to family uh, first. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's something that I, I personally struggle with all the time: is uh, how much time you have you're, you're spending at the office versus how much time you are at home. Uh, I've got younger a young daughter, and I know you've got you know three kids under six, so it's a it's a challenge for you as well. But you've got to be committed, and you've got to have great people working with you. What do you think? You got to have a great wife. Yeah, you got a great uh, wife that understands the game. You know, most guys are in seasonal jobs. You know, Steve's your season is a little longer than most. It is. Some you know, yeah. guys have year-round jobs, but you know, we go really hard for four or five months. You know, we're away, you know, spending 70, 80, 80 hours at the club. And, you know, the wife has to understand that, and uh, then another time you get to spend a lot of time. So it balances out. You just there's no uh, great formula, Patrick, mm-hmm. uh, to doing that. You just gotta free will it. Nobody has the answers, but uh, you know you just gotta do the best you can with what you got. Um, I think it uh, you know this will lead us into our next uh, speaking point about recruiting and hiring staff, which Steve mentioned a couple times here about hiring good people. But um, we kind of touched on this. But what uh, the Specifically, you know, what traits are you looking for? When you, when you first meet someone as a potential assistant, what are, what are you looking for right away? I mean, you've seen the resume, you know, maybe where they've been, who they've worked for, but, you know, what, what are you looking for when you make that first impression? Well, um, I like to introduce you to other members of the club or the other team members, of basically uh, on our staff. See how they interact with uh, with one another. Uh, I'm looking for someone that's comfortable in their own skin, uh, who's committed, uh, wants to make this uh, a career, uh, has really thought about that to a long, you know, long end, if you will. Um, but uh, playing golf with with them is is uh, always revealing. I know that's something that you've done, Bob's done over the years with with virtually pretty much every assistant I would imagine that he's hired. And there's been many, many that have gone on to uh, their own head professional jobs. I, I, I couldn't say how many, probably what, about 50 maybe? Have you had? Close. Close, probably 50 professionals went have gone through Bob's program. But, you know, I think it's, it's how comfortable they are in their own skin, how they really interact with members, how passionate they are. Uh, are they present in the interview? You know, I, are they, are they right there, right now with you and um, excited about an opportunity? Like all those things really come into play. Obviously, the, the credentials are, you've vetted those out, obviously, and you're going you're gonna to do, uh, do your homework and on, on the people that are applying for the position. But uh, I think a lot of it is chemistry and how they interact with the staff, how they interact with members, how they interact to adversity on the golf course. If, uh, if it, if it comes up, uh, <laughs> well, it's going to come up. <laughs> yeah, it does for me. I know that, but uh, you know, I think that's a big part of it. Well, you know, Patrick, I, I really look to all the former guys um, to bring somebody forward to say, you know, I, I got a kid that's just unbelievable. You got to meet him, go you know, meet him, and, and uh, play golf with him, and have dinner with him, and try and interact with him, and, uh, and the other. Um, 
pool that I draw from is my the team that I now have. They're friends. They're guys that I went to school with. Guys that you know they feel would make great teammates. And uh, you know I, it's important that the team has a great chemistry, not, more so than me and that guy. But the team likes this guy. You know, approves yeah. of him. And obviously, the good manners and how he conducts himself and all those kind of things. Usually, you know, the top guys. Kind of get it, and that's that's actually tough to pick. <laughs> it's like you know many of these job searches. You know, you get you get it down to five or six guys. Any one would be great. You know, I mean, it's hard. I mean, these young, these young guys are really not good dead. They're really good at what they do. Well, that's interesting. You know, you talk about the five or six; they're all really good. And you know, Steve, you've been successful attaining some of those positions. What do you feel like? You know. Was there anything specific for you that put you, you felt, put you over the top with, with some of the committees? No, I don't. I don't. Uh, I think just good fortune, frankly. Yeah, just being <laughs> in the right place at the right time. Truthfully. Yeah, it's just it was luck for him. No, <laughs> no, you know what I mean. Steve's it's, a uh, superstar. You know, well, he's one of our bright, uh, terrific professionals out there. He's, but he's but a lot of it is being in the right place at the right time. Timing in life is everything. Right. Uh, the opportunity... Uh, and when they come open, is it the right fit? It could it be the right, uh, whether it's culturally or geographically, all those things. So, uh, but echo Bob's uh, sentiments again. It's when we look for a professional or a head professional or an assistant professional, we really reach out to our to our friends in the industry and the fellow the past team members and who would be a good fit. Who. I'm sure you, you know someone in, in the industry who would be a good fit for what we're trying to do, uh, understands the, the commitment and the, and the responsibility of the job. You know, one of the things that I always thought was so great about working for Bob was over the years, the, just the camaraderie of the group, uh, it was really um, it's almost a self-perpetuating uh, system where the older guys would really take the younger assistants under their wing. And they, it was we self-policed a, a lot of it, the staff, you know, in terms of helping educate what their role was, what their responsibility was, how they should act, how they should dress, how they, you know, how they conduct themselves, uh, what the expectation was, not only working for Bob but but at the clubs we were at. So it was a it was a great to learn from the from the older guys the way it should be and the way it was done in the past, and uh, we really worked hard on trying to. Grow the family from within, if you will, just elevate right. people up. It's like being on a team, sports team. Freshly coming in, it's right. It's a, a lot of parallels to say, uh, you know, whether it's college basketball or what have you. You've got seniors and you're trying to groom the young guys and how to, how to bring the program forward. Right. Um, well, we've had a couple questions come in here I thought we'd uh, maybe look at. Um, so, David did have a question when he, uh, sure. when he came in here and he says, uh, Pace of play is getting worse, and our members are looking for us to aid in this. Um, his club, timing each group so many times, pace of play, chair, golf committee, nothing happens. I'm feeling that we're wasting time. What do you, I mean, probably won't figure this question out right now. Sure. Um, but <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, that's like a unicorn. In, right? in, in my experience, I mean, I spent a lot of time on the golf course, whether it was Checking on groups, not. I mean, not, you're always looking at pace because that's such a huge issue. But um, uh, I mean, are there any tricks that you guys have had in the past to help pace of play? How's pace of play? I mean, Bob, you probably don't have to do that much, but that's Steve, true. you might. Have. You know, uh, we've got a large membership at Capital City and, and play about almost forty thousand rounds at Brookhaven at our one golf course. It's uh, it's designed such where it's easy to get around. Uh, there's not a big walk between tees and greens. Uh, uh, there's a lot of peer pressure there to, to play at a quicker pace. You know, I think that's the key to it. Um, frankly, we do we do go out and monitor play at pace when needed, obviously. But uh, there's a lot of pressure in the locker room. If you don't you don't play in a timely manner, you're going to hear about it. Yeah. So the the membership plays at a quick pace. They expect the you know they expect the members to do so. And if you bring guests, you know we educate them. Uh, with, we're on the first team, uh, talk to them about time bar and things of that nature. And, uh, they pretty much police themselves to a large degree. I know that's probably not uh, norm for a lot of places, and I know that's a, 
a topic that's very difficult. Uh, moving folks along the, the golf course if it's a four and a half hour pace or what have you, it's, it's, it's no fun. But uh, yeah. obviously, Bob at Seminole and Oakmont, the, 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 I don't know if that's a, a culture that Bob created on, on his own or it's always been that way. But um, you know, I can tell you, if you don't play in a timely manner at both of those places, you're 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 gonna, you're gonna hear it. Mm -hmm. I, I you know I would tell George that if his golf chairman and club president and board aren't all aboard on this issue, I, I wouldn't do anything. I'd leave everybody alone. Mm -hmm. I mean, it has to come from the top. Uh, there has to be policies in place where this you know this is going to happen. You do it again, this is what's going to happen. You do it a third time, this is what's going to happen. And they have to be, it has to really be strong. And, and if you don't have somebody behind it, I, I, I'd forget about it. Yeah. Right. you got to have the support to be able to... Well, you, you're, you're fighting a little battle if, you're, if, you're, if you don't have the support of <laughs> the Yeah. And that's exactly right. You really need that. Uh, another question here was from uh, Steve Scott. Um, it says, in the ever-changing club landscape where the club seems to always take ownership of the shop, is there a convincing argument you might bring to the table to a board or committee to try and change their mind? Club change your mind to, to, to taking the shop over. I think he's saying to uh, stop that from taking the shop and then have the professional continue to own it? Yeah. Well... You know, Bob, Bob and I have had a little bit of a conversation about this, and a brief, I mean, to be honest with you, but, uh, you know, for me, the, the club owns a shop at Capital City. Um, it's their money, so I really pay attention to it, obviously. Um, careful with it. We want to make sure we protect it and grow as much revenue as we can. I probably spend, if it was my money, uh, I'd still spend time on it. I may not spend as much time on it if it was my money. Whereas it's their money, I'm very, very concerned and want to make sure that uh, everything is on board. So I spend more time on it. So uh, the, the argument might be, if you have one, is if I own the shop, I've got more time to spend with the members. Uh, that may be reverse reverse uh, viewpoint of what the members might think, but I think that's probably more accurate. Yeah, I, w I would say, you know, I don't mind making a mistake with my money, right. but you make a mistake with their money, you're in trouble. And, uh, but as far as Steve's concerned, uh, you know, it all gets down to compensation. And, uh, you know, if they've owned it and they know how much they make from it and they want to pay you X, I mean, it's pretty easy to figure out the deal. Uh, you know, at Oakmont, we, uh, we're in a tour. I own the shop, but we're, we're sharing the revenue. You know, there's a formula. And, uh, you know, Devin's going to buy it from me. He's going to take it over. And... Uh, you know, from my standpoint, I just think that the golf professional at the, at the club, now Steve, I think it's just a couple guys own this place. It's a little different. But when you have a revolving door like at Oakmont, uh, you know, I never wanted members coming down and telling me, you know, I'm on the board of XYZ Company. I want you to carry my product. And I want to make those decisions. You know, and I don't want any, and if, if they owned it, they go to their friends on the board and say, you need to make this happen. And then and they'd come down and put some heat on me. I wouldn't have much choice, but when I own it and it's my decision, they're pretty standoffish about it, which is good. And uh, so the control factors an issue. So that's um, the argument there is that if it's club owned, you might end up with a, a lesser presentation or product because of maybe some of these pressure outside pressures right. versus having somebody that's an expert and you know knows how to merchandise and, and then they can do it the way that they want to do it. You, if you take it over, you better be good at it. Right. Um, good question. Good question from everybody here. Uh, we've got another one here from um, Joe Alden. Many general managers are not golfers or understand the business. What are some ways that Bob and C find successful in winning over their general managers? How many general managers have you? Oh, <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe 10. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've always tried to be pals. Now, I, I don't, I don't work for a general manager at either club that I report to. Mm -hmm. We're all even. You know, the manager, the professional, the superintendent. Has it always been that way at Oakmont? It has. Okay. It has. Thank goodness. And 
you know, I, you know, I care as much about each of them. I mean, we're a team, and uh, we've got to work together, and we've got to support each other because you know, one guy kind of goes astray on his own; he's kind of going into the deep end by himself. So, uh, you know, I, I have a lot of empathy for the manager's job because I think it's much more harder than mine, and the superintendent's job because it's all so weather related and cyclical and uh, so I really feel for both of those guys and try to help them as much as I can. Yeah, pretty similar approach on my end. Uh, you know, it's a team effort. It really is always about the team. Uh, I try I try to communicate a lot and maybe over communicate things that are happening at the club, uh, whether it's with the superintendent or the general manager. But it, it, it's a it, it's imperative that you've got a good relationship. And focus on the team aspect. It, it, uh, I just can't uh, say enough about that. And Bob's, you know, Bob's had that uh, philosophy over the years, and uh, you know, I've, I've sort of taken on that same approach. It, uh, one guy's not going to get the job done. You've got there's so much to do at a place like Capital City. You know, we've got we do sixty thousand rounds of golf. We've got twenty two hundred members. We've, Got, uh, we do 100,000 uh, touches in fitness. I mean, there are so many aspects of that operation that you've got to have great people all around. And if you're not communicating, communicating well, it's going to be a, a tough hole. Yeah. Um, it was an interesting dynamic with. Pretty tough. Pretty, yeah. pretty tough. Yeah. Um, it, it can those guys, you know, the golf professional gets to at lunch in the grill room with the members and he goes out to dinner with them and plays golf with them. And, Manager, superintendent, seeing that happen and, and seeing the advantage that the golf professional gets, and it's, you know, they, if they don't have the right ego situation going, I mean, I've had plenty of problems with each of my guys. Uh, you know, once they go kind of sideways, then they're kind of on their own for mm-hmm. me. You know. um, good question there. Uh, another question here from uh, Mark Ammons: How much time do you dedicate to training, <clears throat> and do you have a budget? line just for training. I'm assuming we're talking about staff training. We don't have a, a particular budget line for training, but um, it's an area of focus. We try to have our older assistants or head professionals train the young guys. I'll tell you one thing we've done quite a bit of the last few years is uh, we have our vendors come in and uh, vendor education night. We come in uh, have them speak to the crew. We buy everybody dinner. Uh, we get education points for them. Uh, learn more about the product, how we can sell better, how we can be better merchandisers, how we can grow as professionals, whether it's an equipment vendor or an apparel vendor. Uh, we've done that a lot the last few years, and it's really paid off. You guys know. Do you get uh, continuing education? We do. We do the section. We, do. We, we, we talk to the section ahead of time. And also to the, the manufacturers, we get education points for that. It's cleared through the section office. And uh, it's a good opportunity to team build, but it's really good to uh, continue to train and see how other people are doing it. Sure. And how we can do it better. We don't have all the answers. We know that. And, and, and these guys go into every shop in the section, and they see what's working and what isn't. And I think if you ask them honestly, how are we doing? How can we get better? What's working somewhere else, and you implement some of those in your own operation. That's a good idea. So we don't have a, we do not have a, uh, a budget, you know, a training uh, mm-hmm. budget line item, but it's part of the, it's part, it's certainly part of the program. No budget for me. No, no, I, and I probably do a pretty poor job of training my guys. I really sort of throw them in the deep end and see if they come up floating, you know. <laughs> Uh, my guys do a great job of training the young guys, and I really kind of leave it up to them. If they need help, I step in, but it's pretty rare. And uh, we don't meet as often as we should. Uh, you know, uh, certainly Oakmont is incredibly busy. Seminole's not busy, but at Seminole, uh, I have a little tighter rein of my guys down there. I spend a little more time with them because it's because I do have the time. But Oakmont, uh, pretty rough. So you know, Devin's been my guy for. Two or three or four years now, he, he does a great job training. So then it's it's really kind of delegated down to the, the, the senior assistants or whoever that is to 
to kind of get the culture known it for is. everybody. It is. You know, we, we try and have folks through the program for extended period of time and have them teach the younger kids as to how to how we like to do things or the processes and policies, if you will. And uh, so it's really more self-policed, frankly. Um, we got another question here from uh, Drew Glover. Do you have any advice on your member service team in regards to training, retaining, rewarding, and incentivizing? We have a large golf staff, 12 to 20 guys, but we struggle keeping them longer than six months. We're non-tipping facility, paying them 1050, 1150. This seems to be our biggest struggle in regards to our golf staff. I'm assuming you're talking about outside services. So question was, any advice? Okay, so you say member service team in regards to that training and retaining? The service staff, I mean, the outside guy, the outside yes. guy. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, those those are really our, it's our farm system, you know. I mean, I, I get five or six guys a year that uh, at Oakmont that we watch, and most of those guys, I'll pick one or two a year to bring, bring inside. And, uh, you know, frankly, I want to turn over there. You know, because after six months, really kind of know whether he's going to continue on or whether he should go back, you know, and figure something else out. And uh, so, I don't know. That's I mean, the outside out guys, I don't know. They're not, they're not going to be there for I don't want them to be there for a long time. They don't want to be there for a long time. So we want them to move on. Yeah. So in, in that instance, you're talking about uh, guys that are looking to get into being an assistant, an assistant yeah. club professional. Uh, Steve... Do you have that same, or is it? Do you have some that are more, um, what I would say, non-golf people? You know, we do have some folks that are that, that uh, a few, not many. I really try and recruit people that want to be in the business and want to become assistants and move on, just like Bob was saying. So I'm not really looking for someone to be in that role for a great length of time. Whether we have an opening at Capital City internally or there's an opening in town, we can help them get to where they want to go. I think we've tried to create that culture and, and people seem to know that if I want to get in the business and I want to try and become an assistant, whether it's a capital city or, like I said, another private club in town, uh, we all try to do our best to, to uh, recruit kids that, that want to move on. So mm-hmm. I'm like Bob, I wanted to move on after a certain amount of time. Some things we do for incentives, we do have... Uh, I don't know if this, this person has the ability to have them playing privileges or hit balls or slow nights or the like. I think some of your guys have that ability um, mm-hmm. at Seminole. Some of the folks do have the ability to, to play a little bit of golf, which is another incentive for sure. Some non-monetary. Some non-monetary things. We, we, do, um, we do go out and take the guys out for dinner and try and get together with staff at least you know once a month. That's important for them, I think, to, to help them feel part of the team. One of the things we also do is try to empower them by uh, communication. We give them a uh, what we call a weekly buzz sheet and what's happening for the week, what events are coming up, so they can feel a part of it in ownership, help cross-promote events that we have at the club, whether it's a you know, function uh, in the club or another part of the club or a tournament we have coming up. Mm-hmm. I think if you empower them with some information and feel a little bit more part of the team and not just, man, I'm out there cleaning clubs for the guys and, you know, I'm not getting anything out of it. So we really try to include them into everything we're doing. And how is it, and, and I'm assuming that's email to them, but uh, my, my question, would you do you keep that at the backdrop area or in an area that's... Bushy, and we yeah. give out. We do. We email them. We do have a state. You know, we do have a backdrop area where we have notes, obviously, what's up and coming. Uh, but we communicate a large amount via email, internal communication. In that regard, it seems like I always looked at. I thought the the way that golf clubs were set up was a little bit backwards. In that, you know, your your higher level employees were the ones in the inside and, and you're not, I don't want to say lower level, but your um, lower income or pay guys are out front and they're the ones that are touching the members and, you know, they're the ones that are going to get the questions asked of them about, you know, when's the next, when's That's the right. gas and this That's and right. that. Um, so we try to make them feel a part of it, a big part of the team as they are. Frankly, they're just as important as any team member we have because 
You're right. right. They do touch them. Exactly. They touch the members more than any of us a lot of times. You know? So yeah. um, it's, a key, it's, it's, it's a key position to have. And sure you want to have great kids. You want to have great people in that role. And you want to have them want to move on, in my opinion. That's the incentive. Mm-hmm. You know, to move on, do a great right. job, yeah. come inside, or, or have us help you get a job throughout the industry. I mean, it's, it's a lot of incentive. Right. And I know coming to work for Bob is a big deal. You know, if, if he went to work, uh, he wouldn't say that, but if he went to work outside operations at Oakmont or Seminole, you've got an opportunity there to uh, take advantage of, and you want, you want to really do your best. So you're incentivizing them by the opportunity, which is, I was an assistant in the New Jersey area, working for David Glenn's. I was teaching. I, I, I was teaching quite a bit. I enjoyed it. But I knew I wanted to round out my, my background and become a head professional. So I reached out to Bob and, and uh, inquired about a position there. He didn't have one at the time. He was nice enough to say, keep your resume on file. If something opens, I'll call you. Sure enough, uh, I think Paul Remay at the time, when Paul, Paul moved on and got a great job uh, in Buffalo. Right. Park Club. Club in Buffalo. Yeah. And Bob reached out and said, I have an opening, I'd love to talk to you about it. And we played golf. It's exactly how this worked. We played golf, and that was part of the interview process. I played with some members at Oakmont, played with Bob, played two or three times, you know, I think, together down in Florida at the time. It was in the winter. And where I'm going with this is, um, Sometimes you have, it wasn't a monetary decision for me. In fact, it wasn't even a lateral decision for me. I was doing well teaching. I took the position strictly for an education to move to Pittsburgh. I had never been to Pittsburgh. I had never been to Oakmont. But I knew I wanted to work for Bob. And that's the incentive, you know, the education part. That's Step back to move forward. Hey, that was it. You know, I always thought... I could see, and I uh, was in New Jersey at the time, and the jobs in the section were going to guys outside the section, if you really thought about it, you know. Um, I think Doug Steffen at Baltimore was, you know, um, Mike Gray at Plainfield. Some of the bigger jobs in the section weren't being filled from inside the section. So my thought was, if I ever wanted to come back to, to New Jersey or New York in that Philadelphia part of the world, it's okay to go get a great education somewhere else, and I can come back in the section and get an opportunity. But uh, while I worked for Bob, my main goal was to, truthfully, to make him make him look great. And he didn't need any help, but uh, doing that. But uh, you know, we want to do everything we could to uh, free his life up and make things as easy as he could for him, so he could do what he does best, and that's be with people and make them feel important. Georgia South, even Georgia South. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, we've talked a lot about guys coming to work for you, moving them on. What What is that life cycle now uh, versus you know ten years ago or fifteen years ago? I mean, can, have you been able to keep the the three or whatever that goal is? Is it, is it three years, four years, or five years? Because we talked about less opportunities, you know, if, if these guys are moving, maybe they need to take a lateral move. It's not going to be to jump into their first head professional role. But have you been able to maintain, Bob, have you been able to maintain that, that life cycle for your guys? It's uh, it's growing. Uh, Patrick, I will say, you know, it used to be, you know, Steve was, it was kind of a three-year deal, two or three years, and boom. And some guys went out quicker. I don't bring him. Went to Phoenix Country Club after a year and a half. Uh, and James Swift did too, yeah. really quickly. But... Uh, you know, but now I'd say it's a little it's a little tougher. You know, so the guy. I mean, I don't really have a you know three years and out kind of a rule. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody some guys did, but uh, I would say now it's probably five, five, and six, and seven years before they get out. In, in I'm assuming uh, in, I don't want to make any assumptions here, but if you go to work for Bob Ford, I mean, are any of your guys not moving into head professional roles? Are they? Did it, did, have you got to have anybody that's coming in? Hey, we just we need to get you a new experience. Mm-hmm. Let's you're going to have to go to wherever. Yeah, yeah. You know, I yeah. mean, I can't recall through the years because there've been so many of them. But uh, I, I know specifically three or four kids that got out into the rep business. You know, and, and I, you know, I've got two sons who were at Florida State in the PGM program, and uh, 
you know, whether it's my son, whether it's the um, my assistants, the outside staff, I tell all of them, you know, this is just an incredible opportunity at this time in your life to, you know, experience, you know, this situation, but and to meet people and the exposure you're you're going to get is extraordinary, and you know sometimes somebody maybe a member is going to grab you and say you know I want you to come work for me, and, and that's great. You know you're in a position to be able to take advantage of any of those opportunities. I think to become a head golf professional, I think you have to be like I was. You have to be a degenerate, <laughs> you know, a golf degenerate uh, like Steve. You know, we just love to play the game. We love to be around the game. We love to be at the club. It's you know, it's got a lifestyle really for us. And you know, not all guys are cut out for that. You know, if you don't have an unbelievable passion for the game, you're probably not going to you know be incredibly successful. I think you have to have a phenomenal passion to play the game and be around people to play the game. Now, you don't have to play well. You just you don't have to really enjoy the game because so, you know we give our life to it. You know, weekends and holidays. Right, we got uh, a lot of sacrifices to be a golf professional. So, I just tell all the guys keep your options open, you know. And I, I'm going to support you no matter what you do. That's right. The same, you know. It's funny anymore. I try and I tease uh, the, the guys. Don't really know this, but I try and talk them out of it. When they come and ask, "Hey, you have an opportunity? Can I come work for you?" I really try and talk them out of it. Think about it. Why do you want to do this? I mean, weekends, holidays, friends and family. And your buddies are playing golf, and you're, you know, you're helping us fold shirts in the shop and bring merchandise. I mean, is this really what you want to do? Right? You're not getting rich, you know. You're not getting. It could be a lot of time, a lot of hours, and, and you know, just really test them and see if they want to do it or not. Some guys do, some don't, you know. And, and it's a lifestyle, as Bob said. It really is. So, look, when they come work for you, you're going to support them whatever they want to do and give them every opportunity to do it. Because so. they, they are doing the blood sweat and tears, you know. Sure. They're doing it. So with that, you know, I what I've seen a little bit of, um, you mentioned here a couple guys that have gotten out into being reps, whatever. Um, I've seen guys that are getting, you know, three, four, five interviews, you know, knocking on the door, and they just get to the point where whether it's just the emotional roller coaster, they can't do it anymore. I mean, I've been there, um, but they end up, you know, leaving the business, which is unfortunate because I mean, I'm I'm viewing it that we have a lot of good people that are leaving the business, and you know, how do we change that trend? I mean, I don't think we're going to answer that now, but uh, um, do you yeah. have you seen that with any any guys that are? What's well, the supplier demand and demand deal? You know, and uh, I've had great assistants that ended up being great golf professionals have to go eight, eight, nine, ten interviews before they hit. And mm-hmm. it's like fishing, you know. And uh, so I, I tell those guys hang in there and keep at it if you really want to do it. Don't give up. Yeah. And if, you know, if you're not into it and you've had enough, then get out. You know, sometimes those the opportunities where you, you, you interview and you don't get the job, those are the best things that have ever happened to you. Wouldn't maybe have been a good fit. Uh, you're in, I think uh, people have to remember you're interviewing the club as much as they're interviewing you. Absolutely. Uh, you, you need to really look at the opportunity, ask questions, come prepared to the interview to to uh, you know to talk about things that you'd like to see answered. And uh, you know, I think you got to be yourself. And if you're not in the interview process, you're somebody different, or you're putting on a face where you you think you're trying to be what they're looking for. Sometimes it doesn't work. Yeah, and oftentimes it doesn't. So it's timing, it's being genuine and being yourself. And if it works out great, if it doesn't, that's okay. A lot of times, maybe it's better. It's better than it didn't. Well, I think that that, that two way street is what I would mention. What I do talk to a lot of assistants about is that that you know you need to understand whether it's the right fit yeah. and whether this is going to be a good thing for me now. Like everybody wants to make that leap, obviously, to support their family and everything. So it's I've, I've been there. You know, you you just kind of you get in that process and you see yourself there. You see you're moving your family, or you know. But then, is it you really? I mean, how, it's difficult, I think, for people to really look at that club and say, "Is this going to be the right thing for me?" Um, but I think it's really important for the for the younger guys. You know, and I think the other thing is, what do you you're 
the, we talk a lot about the millennial generation, right? I mean, these are your assistants now, probably the millennials. So, what's what do you think their expectations are coming out of PGM schools? You know, and how do you how do you manage the expectations, um, knowing that the life cycle that we've talked about here is longer? You know, uh, getting. I mean, how do you how do you tell an or how do you uh, I guess coach an individual to say, hey, you know, it's going to take you. 12 years probably, or whatever that is, as an assistant, to finally get to where you want to be? Well, I, I try to have them understand reality. <laughs> you, know, I, and there, you know, there's one in five kids that come out of those schools that think that they're going to beat the world, you know, and they're the next whatever they think they are. And it's going to have really fast for them. And, uh, but most of the guys are realistic. I think it's up to us to paint them a realistic picture, too. You know, I would say that, you know, by the time you're 30... You know, you ought to have a pretty realistic chance of getting your own job. So a kid that's 25 doesn't think he's going to get his own job. But a lot of, you know, some of those kids do. You just have to kind of, you know, somehow put them in their place. Well, yeah, I think that's the case. You know, I think uh, some of the kids come out of school with the expectation that they're a PGA member, that they're going to get their opportunity at 25, 26 years old. It, it may happen for some, but the reality is it won't. And it's not because of... They don't have the school, and they oftentimes don't have the life experience or the opportunity, the maturity level that they've been around to get an opportunity at a, at a position like that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they will want to advance really, really quickly. And that's where sometimes I see some of the younger kids misstep a little bit. They maybe take an opportunity that's available, whether it's, uh, and it's not the right fit and they become disenchanted with the role or it doesn't work out, I think they're better off in a, in a program and trying to advance internally mm-hmm. before they get their own opportunity. And it's, it's our responsibility to help educate them and coach them on that. It's okay. It's, you don't have to advance. I think some of the kids that think if they're a head professional at 25, it's not working for them. But... I think 30 is a, a pretty good number, you know, personally. It was certainly at the positions that I was trying to take. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, uh, I want to kind of switch gears here. I, I did want to touch on, um, talk a little bit about communication, just uh, staff and member. Um, how, and, and Bob, Steve, you've obviously seen change, but Bob, you've seen a lot of changes in communication in general. He's um, 100 years old, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's on the telegraph to the phone, to right. the cell phone, He's seen it to all. email. But uh, how, you know, especially in the last, I guess, 10 years, how, you know, how have you managed that communication, the changes in communication, not only to the staff, but to the members as well? Well, I think everybody knows how we've done it. I think that, you know, one thing that I'm queer about uh, I have to return calls and return emails promptly. And uh, I don't care what the call is about. I don't care who it is. I can't stand that somebody called me and wanted me to call them back. I haven't called back. So I think I'm probably uh, obsessive compulsive about that. But at the end of the night, I'm going to, I go to bed and I don't, I don't really owe anybody anything. You know, I've returned their email, returned their phone call, their text. That's really all I can do, you know, from a... Electronic standpoint, but uh, you know it was pretty easy through the years to go through all those changes that we've gone through in society, and uh, I just would tell guys to, to be really diligent about returning people's phone calls, members, vendors. There's anybody that calls you is an opportunity to help somebody. Mm-hmm. They called you for a reason. They need you to help them do something, and, and I'm just obligated to try to help people. Do you have a uh is it a 24-hour rule, or is it just as soon as you get yeah. it, you've got to try to get it? Well, I, I do. I get back right away. And uh, just don't, you know, I like, I mean, that's kind of my homework. You know, I like to get my homework done so I can go relax. I, I do it quickly. How many of those communications are you getting in one day? I, I don't know, 40 or 50. And you're still able to, to do that? I, I, I do it throughout the day. I do it. I get it off my plate. 
a good lesson. He's as good as I've ever seen at doing that. He's terrific with it. I'm not as One good of a few things I'm good at. No, that's not true. <laughs> um, he's the best I've ever seen at doing that. Uh, I try to do it. I'm not as good as Bob at doing it. Uh, you know, communication is some of the things that uh, this conversation not too long ago about Facebook or Twitter or things of that nature. We really try and stay off of all those things. And the staff stay off of all those things. Uh, it's, it's something that the new gener- younger generation is really um, the texting and constantly looking at your phone and the communication that they have. It's, that's a challenge for us. And it's always it's something that we try to pay attention to. But um, we, we, it's, a, it's a, something I think all of us as an industry need to take a look at. Do you guys have any specific rules for the staff around, you know, what's on their Facebook page? Or sure uh, we do. Uh, that's really just kind of come to a head this this winter. You know, I talked to all my guys and talked, spent some time with Brandon Walsh at the Country Club, and you know, got his. He has a very detailed written as you can imagine. You know, Brandon's right down the line. He's so good at what he does, but uh, you know, my staff is not allowed to. Say anything on communicate on Facebook or Twitter about the club about anything. Both clubs, both clubs, mm-hmm. and uh, I really don't like them texting and you know having those kind of relationships with members. You know, email texting. I just don't think it's healthy. You know, really, unless it's you know business related. I, I don't want mm-hmm. them socializing like that. You know, I think there's kind of a, a line there. That we should. We, we don't want to get. You know, we want to be friendly but not friends and hang out together go drinking together but that, that's not going to happen mm-hmm. and we've talked about this uh, in fact we talked about it at length this winter uh, saying we've adopted the, a lot of the same policies that Bob has and, and even as far as saying uh, thank you notes that go out if it's uh, what warrants a thank you note and what doesn't and if it's uh, you know, if the member takes the staff uh, to a ball game or something it's one note that goes out with everyone's name on it it's not just uh, um, see who can outdo the see other. See who can outdo the other with the note, or how many times they send a note. It's you know, we really try to pay attention to the communication that's going out to the membership. I, I think that's a big part of your question was how has communication changed? And, and a lot of times, uh, I don't like email. You know, I'm not a big email guy. Uh, it's obviously something that we do every day, but it's hard to it's hard to know how the person. Is coming across? Are they kidding? Are they not kidding? Or what's the tone of the email? So, um, you know, I think uh, it's important to really review that policy internally, and sometimes have a I wish that the email had a safety on it. You know, after you, <laughs> if you don't like it, right. you can pull it back. back. You know, but like, uh, long story short, but I, if you do receive, pay attention to the emails that you get, how what your response is, and. I, th- I just sometimes I get nervous. You send a response, and it, you know, it can be forwarded on to anybody. Right? And uh, you sure. got to pay attention. I can't tell you how many times I've started to type an email back that is has gotten me emotionally charged about something, and then I just you know clicked it off and picked up the phone and called that person. Yeah. You know, and, and it, I always felt better about that because you get those emails, and you know you get you have a reaction to it. You don't know really maybe what this person's saying, and then your reaction may not be. It's a, it's a miscommunication, and then no like you say, it can be forwarded on. Um, so, anyways, that, that's good stuff there. So, you know, one. Well, we got a couple more questions, but uh, this one's very broad. But uh, so, the future of the golf professional, and what's what's the next generation? What do they need to be prepared for moving forward? Well, I would say uh, a tough battle. You know, to get your own job, it's tougher today, I think, than it was. Um, I think the X's and O's really haven't changed. You know, we're all about taking care of people and making their experience at our facilities exceptional that day. And uh, I don't think those, you know, fundamentals aren't going to change. And, uh, you know, I, I think just going back a little bit with Steve about our assistants and things, you know, and particularly when they get to the interview process and there's six guys and, any one of them could be great. You know, there's no rhyme or reason why this guy got selected over everybody else. You know, many times it's a done deal through a network of things that you know they're just trying to make 
show the membership that they're going through the process that they already had the guy picked out because of some relationship with somebody else. I mean, there's no rhyme or reason. Don't get these guys don't they shouldn't get upset about not getting jobs because it's crazy how they they pick guys. You know, just depends on who's in the chair making those decisions, really. Mm -hmm. But uh, the next generation, what are they going to be prepared for? you know, I think it's, I mean, it's, it's difficult. Uh, our jobs are tough, and uh, I'd like to see a lot of our guys become general managers because I think there's a real void there uh, with getting golf-savvy guys in those positions. Uh, you know, for a, it's mostly food and beverage-oriented, and for them to, you know, that, that relationship's a struggle. And I, I know, I know this, this fellow, the question he asked was in relation to that. So those are the struggles you're going to have. Well, I would think, the way I view it, um, around that, with the gene, I think there's a great opportunity right now for the golf professional to become, um, to have more and more golf professionals becoming general managers. And, and tell me what you think. But uh, I don't think that the general managers have the ability, as clubs, as we know, we see them consolidating these, these two positions. And I don't think that a lot of the general managers have the ability to step down and do you know what the golf professional does because of maybe the interpersonal skills that are involved, but I think the, the, the golf professional has the ability to to do what the general manager does. Do you guys do you think there's that opportunity? I think without question. Well, I think there is a good opportunity for that, but I, I think there's a lot of general managers out there who are really sharp, you know, really good at what they do, uh, communicate beautifully, and uh, have the have the right mindset, the right approach. And obviously, there's some that aren't that don't, but. There, I think there is a greater opportunity to become a general manager of the facility. That's why I marvel at uh, someone like Gene Matari or uh, Phil Ondi who do both of those roles beautifully, seamlessly, uh, at big facilities too, not just uh, Salkin Valley, one yeah, it seems of premier uh, facilities in the country. So yeah. I have incredible respect for him and what he does. So. And, and I think Bob's right. In the future, be prepared for you know anything, frankly. I mean, it's... It's tough. It's competitive. Uh, I, I wouldn't, uh, you don't know in an interview, you didn't get the job, it's okay. You know, you're going to go through two or three of those and you'll find the right job, the right fit. Uh, as Bob said, the cream rises to the top on a lot of these occasions and and sometimes it's a done deal. It's, it's uh, an inside job, if you will, for, for getting the jobs. They're already predetermined and they're going through the exercise just to please the membership or the board or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't get discouraged in that regard. I really want to thank Bob and Steve for both being here. If, uh, if anybody has any questions uh, after our interview here um, to follow up on, you know, certainly email me. Um, I'll pass it on to, to them. Um, but really appreciate everybody's questions that came in and uh, great conversations. So, again, thank you guys for taking the time to, to be here. Thanks for all you thank do for all professionals. Pat. Yeah, thank you for being our head professional. Take care of us. <laughs> right. appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. A lot of fun, so anyways, uh, we'll sign off. This was the Getting Better Now podcast, presented by the Golf Business Network. Head over to iTunes to subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and be sure to rate and review while you're there. For more information, go to golfbusinessnetwork.com.